This is an ABC podcast. So I think at the moment there's a two-headed calf in the freezer. Sometimes animals that they've collected as roadkill and things like that. So there's often an interesting array of things that are brought in. What the duck? Alrighty then, what's in your freezer? I can tell you what's in mine. Alright, let's take a look. Still working from home. Yep, peas. Peas, superior vegetable. Uh, emergency spag bowl. Um, some chicken soup. Probably should eat that soon. Oh, some dead frogs. They're waiting to be sent off to a museum, actually, to help try and figure out what the hell is going on with Australia's frogs and why they keep on dying at the moment. But a couple of double-bagged dead frogs is far from the weirdest thing sitting in Australian freezers. So the last line of my Twitter bio is, what's in your freezer? Natalie Warburton likes freezers. And having studied zoology and been very interested in animal bodies for a very long time, I've often collected animals when I've found them, things on the side of the road and stowed them in a freezer. Okay. And much of my family has been recruited in this process as well. Weird bonding activity, but okay. So we've often had a weird array of animals in our freezer at home that then get dissected as part of studying how animal bodies are put together. Being clear here, Natalie Warburton is an Associate Professor of Anatomy at Murdoch Uni and she actually teaches in the vet school and even the forensic science students. We were donated a koala the other week. Hmm. Particularly useful if Mrs Magpie calls a hit on Blinky Bill and his body turns up in a barrel or something. Sometimes finding something in a freezer seems like an archaeological dig in itself. I was surprised when Natalie said that we should speak with a fellow freezer enthusiast, Gillian Garvey, over at La Trobe University. And when I looked her up, she was a real, actual archaeologist. I am an archaeologist. Yeah, that's what I just said. But I'm also really interested in looking at modern animals to understand how First Nations people might have gone about butchering and cooking and processing native Australian animals. So she's got a freezer full of roadkill. Because to figure out how animals were butchered and prepared in the past, you need to butcher and prepare them in the present. So I've got everything from kangaroos and wallabies, wombats, a seal. (laughs) Um, I've also got a range of birds, so seabirds, so shearwaters, penguins, cormorants, gulls, possums, you name it. I've kind of got a, a bit of everything and anything that I can get hold of. Okay, now you're sounding like a body collector. I've now butchered and looked at the nutritional value of nearly 50 Australian species. So that's included things like all different types of possums, bandicoots, paddy melons, kidna and platypus and other animals. And we were interested in how people may have gone about processing seals. And so I was trying to find a seal, which, as you can imagine, I don't find as roadkill. The Marine Science Rescue Unit at Melbourne Zoo actually knew that I wanted a seal. And so when one washed up dead at Port Arlington, 
They rang me and said that they had a seal that they couldn't get to. So I got hold of a trailer, borrowed a trailer, and went down there, went to the council depots where they had already put the seal off the beach, and they put it from a front-end loader straight into a blue tarp in a trailer, and we wrapped it up, and I drove back up the Geelong Road with this seal literally hanging out of the trailer. (laughs) We tried to hide it as much as possible, but its tail was poking out the end. Got it back to La Trobe and I found a few people who helped me lift this seal in the tarp into the freezer, which was fine. But then, of course, trying to get a very, you know, 100 kilo plus animal out of a chest freezer when it's frozen solid is not easy. So we actually went and hired an engine crane to lift that freezer, that, that, that seal out of the freezer. True story. And then we let it defrost and then we cut it up out the back of archaeology down on the lawn with people wearing hazmat suits, so fully covered because seals can have a number of different diseases. We weighed and measured every single part of the seal. We cut all the flesh off it, all of the bone and weighed and measured even its insides, its intestines, everything to try and get a picture of the economic anatomy of the seal. So how much meat, fat, blubber, marrow you can get out of different body parts of the animal. And we also analyse all the nutritional quality of that as well. So we look at what kind of trace elements and fatty acids and so on you can get from different native fauna as well to better understand why people might eat animals in particular ways. So there's evidence for all sorts of good eating in the archaeological record, including some of the current inhabitants of the coat of arms. Macropods, so kangaroos and wallabies, very, very common in the archaeological record. We see that people frequently broke into the bone marrow, so into the long bones of a lot of these kangaroos and wallabies because kangaroo meat or wallaby meat is really lean, it's really good for you, and that that's really good. But in the past, so pre-Westernised Australia, pre-colonial times, there wasn't a lot of fat on those animals and there wasn't necessarily a lot of fat available elsewhere. So people would supplement what they were eating with other parts of the animals, so things like bone marrow were really common. Gillian hypothesises that this habit could be a workaround for a bit of a problem with lean meat because you actually do need a bit of fat in your diet. If people are going to eat a lot of protein without fat to help them digest it, then they can run the risk of protein poisoning or rabbit starvation is another name that it goes by. Mm. And so we see this with Inuits and other communities in the high latitudes of the Northern Hemisphere where they're eating high protein diets, but you need fat to help you absorb and break down that protein in your body. And we think that something was likely could have happened in the high latitudes of places like Ice Age Tasmania. So people living there during the last glacial maximum when it was a lot harsher and drier, there wouldn't have been that many sources of readily obtainable fat available. So we think in the archaeological assemblages we see there, which span 30,000 years, people are always smashing open the long bones from these wallabies, so their legs, and always getting that bone marrow. And we think that is directly to help them process that high-protein meat that they're eating. Of course, the only way Gillian can make statements like this is to understand how much fat and protein you could expect in a Bennett's wallaby, which means 
more roadkill. So I undertook a collection of roadkill over a year in Tasmania and I collected fresh, well, as fresh as I could get it, Bennett's wallaby carcasses. So what I did is I collected this roadkill. I would process it. I wouldn't take the whole animal. I would often just take parts of the animal. So I'd break open its bone marrow. So I'd break open its lower leg, its shin bone, what we call the tibia. I'd take samples of marrow out of there, samples from the meat, and also samples from the brains of these animals. I mean, if you came across this scene, I can only imagine what you'd think. These Bennett's wallabies, regardless of how cold or how warm it was or where they were located, that they remained a really good source of protein and fats and especially unsaturated high fatty acids, which are really, really important for helping you to break down meat, in particular oleic acid, that they remained a fantastic source of that particular fat throughout the year. This is sort of where archaeological evidence, anatomical science and the discipline of nutrition intersect to paint a picture of ways to potentially live more sustainably. I think we can also learn a lot about the kinds of animals we might be able to think about eating going forwards and what kind of resources we maybe should think about utilising in Australia rather than introduced ungulates or hooved animals that aren't necessarily good for the Australian environment. Yes, well, I know that if I don't ask this, I will get letters of complaint. So have you ever tasted any of your specimens? No, no, I've never eaten any of the roadkill that I've collected and I don't suggest that anybody else should either. (laughs) It is. I mean, I I will also point out that in Victoria, you do need special permission to be able to collect these carcasses. And now to some recipes. No, not for roadkill, but for kingfishers. I mean, not using kingfishers to be served to kingfishers. I'm just going to take you through. Di Hackoff is the hospital manager for Zoos SA. It's certainly not a, uh, a vegan freezer by any means, but you could certainly make a decent meal if you're a, a vegetarian. This freezer contains ingredients to make food for all of the animals that fall under Di's care and it's chockers. We've got frozen broccoli. Now what we do is um, we'll defrost these and we'll um, put them in our, our bird food or maybe in some of our native food. What else have we got in here? If I dig a little bit deeper, you can see that we've got white bait in here. We've currently got a sacred kingfisher that's in quarantine and he gets white bait and a little bit of meat mix. Yum. What else have I got in here? Oh, so this is going to be a little bit strange. We've got frozen cashews. <laughs> I'm just surprised the nurses haven't eaten the cashews, but they've obviously been very disciplined this week. And then if I dig a little bit deeper, we're going on to more what we probably feed our carnivores now. And we've got frozen day-old chicks in here that we'll give to otters or meerkats. Usually they're the main lot that get them. The other thing we have is crickets. We've had um, what I call jelly cakes for western swamp tortoises and that's where we have to, we'll get the corn out, we'll get the peas out, we'll get some meat out, we'll grind it all up in a blender and then we add gelatin to it and it's put in a little ice brick container that you just freeze your ice in and um, then it's frozen and we put it out every day and they're fed that and that is an incredibly special diet and 
you know, I challenge any chef to come up with making that cake at a really good concentration where um, it's not falling apart when you put it in the water. So there's a lot of challenges we have, but we meet them and it's a part of that, the job that I think a lot of people really enjoy. I suppose the truth of the matter is that almost all of us will end up like the white bait in the freezer at some point, or at least in a fridge. It's just that we don't expect... Uh, a koala and some wallabies. ...to be in freezers. Quokkas and bandicoots. And this is because Natalie Warburton is into teaching comparative anatomy, you know, sorting out the differences between the bodies that we exist in here on Earth. A couple of years ago, we were donated with an orangutan, which was amazing. I often have research students that are interested in the musculoskeletal anatomy, so how the muscles and the bones relate to each other. And so they will dissect the animals uh, with painstaking detail to go through and look at how each of the muscles attaches to the skeleton. And these details make a map for Natalie and her students, a map that helps them understand animal biology and elements of their behaviour. In our big study of differences between male and female kangaroos, one of the things we were interested in was in, in male kangaroos, some of them can get really big and muscular. They do not skip leg day. And so that's to do with a theory called competition between males for access to the females. And there's other theories around sperm competition. Oh and so we were interested to see if the reproductive anatomy between males that were big and muscly was correlated with their big muscular body or not. Oh my. And so this particular day we dissected about 50 reproductive tracts of kangaroos and we were still going late into the evening and I had to rush to the daycare centre to pick up my son and I said I'm really sorry baby but I've got to go back to the lab and I stuck him on the chair next to me and he said oh what's that you're dissecting mummy? He was about three at this time and I said oh it's a, a bit of a kangaroo. And he said, is that the tail? And I said, no, baby, it's the penis. And he went, oh, fair enough, because this is a fairly normal conversation to have in my house. <laughs> we got home and my son rushed inside and he said, daddy, daddy, I got to go to the lab with mummy and she was dissecting kangaroo penises, but Bill was wearing green overalls. And so he was much more excited about workwear at that time than he was about what mummy was dissecting. <laughs> Very normal dinner conversation is, what did you dissect today, Mummy? And yes, by the way, it did turn out that the bigger and more muscly ruse did have bigger and more muscly dudes. Muscles of erection and accessory glands too. But why go for one big appendage when you could go for numerically more appendages? I have dissected many kangaroos as part of research projects looking at the differences between male and female kangaroos and a farmer had been undertaking a control of kangaroos in a particular area but he noticed that one of these animals had really unusual hands and so he sent me the hands and they in fact had seven fingers on each hand as opposed to the normal five so so that became a really fascinating specimen to have a look at the muscular connections to the fingers and to work out whether all of those extra digits were, were functional or not. Okay, okay. Anomalies aside, why is Natalie spending her time dissecting all of these animals? 
through the marsupial dissections that I do, we build up a knowledge of how the bones reflect the shape of the muscles and how they work together. And then I apply that to extinct marsupials. So some of my research is looking at the skeletons of animals that are now extinct, extinct kangaroos and wallabies and things like that. And I can look at the shapes of the bones and interpret their muscle anatomy from that and then identify their likely behaviour. So some great examples are things like fossil kangaroos from the Nullarbor Plain where there are no trees indicate that they had muscles and limbs that enabled them to climb, which is really weird. So we've got fossil tree kangaroos from an area that now doesn't have trees and that tells us something really important about how the environment has changed over time. And speaking of change, there's a whole special freezer section at a sort of semi-secret location that aims to ward off extinction. Dr Nicola Rivers is a reproductive health lecturer at Monash Uni and, on top of that, she's in the management team for the Australian Frozen Zoo. I wouldn't think of our freezers as freezers. They're kind of like gigantic thermoses full of liquid that could kill you if you don't behave properly around them. But uh, we do go by the name Australian Frozen Zoo, so obviously there's a freezer element there. Yeah, this is colder than your average freezer. So what's the liquid that's in there? Our tanks are full of liquid nitrogen, which sits around minus 196 degrees Celsius, so much colder than your average at-home freezer for sure. This is a biobank for genetic material that not freezer freezers are really big circular things. You have to get on a ladder to look in the top and the lighting is dark and the exit signs are illuminated like you're in a spaceship with a heap of humans in stasis cases around you, you know? And inside the freezers are tiny little shelves full of tiny, tiny little boxes. There's a few different ways that we can store tissue, but most of our collection is stored in what we call a cryovial, which is essentially just a really tiny plastic tube. And inside of that tube, we might have a liquid with potentially sperm or eggs in it, or we might have a piece of ovarian tissue or even just skin tissue that's sitting in a sort of liquid cryoprotectant, which is there to just make sure that all the cells are happy inside their cryovial. Do you get to collect the genetic material as well? Uh, Usually we're partnered with organisations who are much more equipped to handle the animals. Our end of it is usually just making sure that the samples are kept nice and safe and happy in their journey into the cryotank. So making sure that we are preserving the cells in a way that's going to ensure long-term viability. So if in dozens or hundreds of years' time, that species has an issue that requires some sort of conservation action, we can then bring those cells out of our liquid nitrogen tank again safely and carefully and hopefully have a really high number of cells that are still alive in that sample. You are sort of an expert in eskies, aren't you? (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I know a lot about eskies. For OH&S reasons, I definitely don't work with any official eskies because it has to all to be liquid nitrogen approved. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, very high-end uh, deluxe eskies, I oh guess, my. would be the right way. <laughs> right, right. So it's like the Chanel of eskies we're talking about. Exactly. Here. 
and you'd want it to be deluxe. Held within these big thermoses of steel are tiny bits of animals, extremely precious both now and in the future. We have around uh, 81 or so species Mm -hmm. that are banked away. They've all been collected within Australia, either from zoos or wildlife parks. In terms of the breakdown of those 81 species, now about uh, 70% of them actually have some sort of conservation status associated with them. In one case, there's one that's actually extinct in the wild. So now we have samples from that species that we can potentially offer as a conservation solution in the long term. Which species is that one? So that one, it's a type of oryx. It's a scimitar horned oryx. And it was collected several decades ago. <laughs> Going to Google. It's kind of like a, a, an antelope kind of situation. <laughs> oh, handsome. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's like the, it's the Chanel of goats, you know? <laughs> like I said, we're very high end. <laughs> right, so what's the plan then? It's all very well to go out and take opportunities to find these genetic samples. What's the plan going forward? So essentially the idea of a frozen zoo in any sense is to act as kind of like a a backup plan. Like this isn't meant to replace our current attempts at conservation. It's not there to replace the important role that we have in maintaining our current ecosystems and protecting our environments. It's purely there so that we have a backup of genetic material that we could potentially use to reintroduce into populations. So Something that you can see when uh, populations are declining is they'll have a shift to reduced genetic diversity. And that reduction in genetic diversity can have really severe consequences in that you're going to see uh, an elevation in mortality. This can be things like a reduction in the ability to reproduce or even just a decline in the ability to deal with new challenges. I'm going to oversimplify it here. You need a pointier nose because of climate change, but no individuals with a pointy nose are left to breed with. And so, as the genetic pool gets smaller and smaller, the species as a whole gathers pace towards oblivion. So, by collecting samples in this way and storing it away, we're capturing the genetic diversity that's currently available and having that in storage so that if we start to see those declines in the future, we have the, at least the opportunity to try and reintroduce that genetic diversity into the population and potentially pull them out of what's kind of known as that extinction vortex of things getting worse and worse and worse over time. <laughs> in that sense, it's meant to just sort of sit in the background purely in case of the worst case scenario. It's sort of like break in case of emergency. I'm not going to lie, there's a lot of potential barriers in the way, but I am affirmed in the fact that there are a lot of very smart people in Australia and overseas that are working to develop the technologies to make sure that if in, uh, let's say in 10 years time, we need to be able to use assistive reproductive technologies, if we're developing those technologies now, hopefully they'll be available in time uh, to be able to be implemented. This project is one of completely split emotions for me. Wonder that within these huge big cylinders there is something like the genetic family tree of the world and grief that we're even planning for extinction and hope 
I suppose, that we'll never ever have to use these samples. And also, I'm happy this place is kept all locked away from people because if there's one thing I know, it's that when there's a fridge, there'll be someone who won't be able to resist taking a look inside. Gillian Garvey, the archaeologist from La Trobe Uni. Recently at La Trobe, I went into work and I hadn't been in for a while. I went out the back and I'm like, somebody's broken into the freezer. <gasps> and so, so it's in a grated area out the back. And so someone's obviously come in and we've got a big, we've got this massive chest freezer, but also a little freezer next to it. And some, I don't know, I guess their kids have come in and thought, oh, what's in here? And jammed it open, this big lock, and just opened it. And there would have been just this massive kangaroo and plastic bags full of bits of animals. <laughs> and no doubt it's going to shut no. Yeah, they're going to have nightmares. <laughs> That's all that maybe they're not made for a life of crime after that. Um, you know, What the Duck is a production of ABC Science and it's totally cool, man. I'm Ann Jones and I make the program along with Patria Ladgrove and script editing from Joel Werner. The program is made mostly on Wadawurrung and Ghana country with help from experts from all over the world. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.